Hi, it's Ed. You know, wrestling for MMA podcast host, Ed Gallo, world-renowned. I hope so. I hope people around the world know who I am. I've got a few countries down, but I think I need a little more representation. Anyway, yeah, I'm back. And it's a, a weird fight week. I did some previews for the three title fights at UFC 251 last week on last week's episode, which you should listen to if you haven't. It was pretty good, I think. Um, yeah, one of the breakdowns is on Kamaru Usman versus Gilbert Burns, but Gilbert Burns uh, has the COVID, so we're not going to talk about that fight because it's not happening. But Jorge Masvidal stepped in to replace him, and uh, you know, just some of the news surrounding that is that Masvidal had apparently had been training for this fight the whole time. He was like an official backup, and you know, it's just kind of like a uh, a PR stunt that he's like, oh, show up in my bathrobe, I'm eating pizza, and I got to cut twenty pounds and all that. It's kind of a ruse to get people interested in, like, oh my god, the madman, will he do it? He's been training, he's, you know, he's prepared. So, I'm really interested in that matchup, way more interested in that than Burns and Usman, both for overall skill level and the stylistic matchup. So, I'm definitely going to talk about Masvidal and how I think that matchup goes in terms of wrestling. I can't predict the striking that well, I haven't really studied Usman's striking that much, um... I really haven't rewatched the Covington fight, which is where you really need to be looking right now. Um, but yeah, I assume Usman wants to wrestle with him, so we're definitely going to talk about Masvidal's defense. I also have a good number of listener questions that I will get to after that, and they're pretty good. And then I just want to, uh, you know, little preview for next week. Uh, Kyle McLaughlin, you know, my my co-founder, my my boss man. Uh, of the fight site he had a really good uh like official request or patreon and he, he pays me to do what he wants because he knows that i don't i'm not interested in like old school heavyweights or uh you know other stuff like that so he's forcing me to to talk about it uh but i'm actually interested it's it's going to be about pro cop and uh big nog the first time they fought and uh, just you know how the wrestling was going and you know how nogara adjusted and, and all that so that'll be fun i might have like a video component that I can put on Patreon as well, and that should add to the experience somewhat. But yeah, I think I'll, I'll dedicate the whole episode to that and maybe a, a post-fight breakdown for UFC 251. Cool. Uh, before I get going, I just want to say that we have merchandise now, the fight site does. It's pretty cool. Uh, our, our guy Yadsenen, who has a real name, but you know, he's Yad, he has all these cool logo designs and Ben set up a like a little website where you can buy you know merchandise with it and like it doesn't cost us to produce it so you know at your own leisure go ahead and, and buy stuff but yeah we, we definitely get a cut of that and it's cool stuff so if you want to support us without like a monthly payment even if you don't have content ideas this is another way you could support us and plus i think the gear looks pretty cool it's all black and gold like the site logo um there's, there's masks phone cases mugs you know, sweatshirts, t-shirts, men's and women's wear. There's leggings. I don't know if anyone's going to get the leggings, but I hope someone does. I just want to you know, see if they look good and if men can wear them. Because if they're like normal tights, yeah, I'll, I'll get a pair for sure. I'll model them. So somebody get those and show me how they look so I can figure out if I should get them. Because I got a bunch of stuff already, but yeah, I didn't want to go too far quite yet. Cool. And if you want you know, gear or something a little more official to support the site, for we don't have our own stuff, but we do have this affiliate sponsorship with Hyperfly. Uh, they make geese and other like cool-looking, uh, you know, grappling training gear. 
So if you go to the link at the bottom of our, our homepage or the, at the bottom of any of our pages on the fight site, you'll see the link for that. And we do get a little bit of that if you buy from there. Uh, so you can do that as well. So those are, those are two ways you can help us out other than subscribing on Patreon. Cool. Sorry for, for advertisements, but you know, it's got to be done. So let's talk about Jorge Masvidal. Uh, I did write an article for Bloody Elbow. It was my like, second or third article for the site ever, which is, you know, I tried a lot harder back then. <laughs> but uh, it was called Wrestling for MMA, Jorge Masvidal, and it was about his defense mostly. Uh, this was before he fought Ben Askren. And, you know, everyone was wondering, you know, can Masvidal wrestle? What's it, what's it going to be like? And he's had tons of fights. There's tons of evidence. But I looked at two fights in particular. I looked at the Benson Henderson fight and the Damian Maya fight. It was like the two best wrestlers he had fought that recently. And uh, I learned a lot. And I'd like to summarize some of my findings for you guys. And you can definitely read the article for more in-depth information. But it definitely left me feeling very confident about the matchup with Askren, and it's a shame. <laughs> it's not a shame that it ended the way that it did, but I was a little bit bitter that it ended the way that it did because I didn't get to see any of the things I, I talked about happen. Like, Askren has two ways he'll get in on the legs. He'll, you know, duck head first, you know, with no real shots up, and just kind of bend over at the waist, which is exactly how that happened. Um, I did write that. And... He'll also, you know, reach out straight with his arms to get some sort of tie-up or wrist control or finger fight or something that he can just be attached to you, and he can transition from from there. I mean, he's a great grappler. He's a really good grappler, Ben Askren. I'm so I'm so low on him because of his entry game and his overall approach to MMA, uh, not taking it very seriously, not learning striking. That that's you know you're gonna have a bad time <laughs> at the high levels if you do that, um, which we saw. But, you know, he, he's really good at getting from these awful positions to good positions because he's just that good of a grappler uh, against people who otherwise can't give him that much resistance. I, I think Masvidal would have showed him up. Uh, the reason I feel so confident about that is a lot of Masvidal's clinch fighting. Um, overall, I would say his clinch fighting is not just reactive to wrestling. He's a pretty active hand fighter. Uh, he mixes it into his own offense, his own offensive grappling. And a lot of the times it just looks like, you know, if, if we're reaching out, if we have long arms, the way the stance matchup is going, he can be, you know, grabbing the wrist there and punching off that, dragging, uh, things of that nature. And he does it conceptually, I would say. Like, as soon as a limb is there, he's looking to drag it or pull it or parry it. Uh, you saw that with, like, the Cowboy Cerrone knockout. He kept throwing that switch kick, and Masvidal was parrying it across his body and then countering. It, that's just his mindset is, you know, to, to take your offense and use it which I think is a great mindset to have if you want to anti-wrestle. I mean, you have to shut down their entries. You have to make them pay for getting into your space. And that's a, that's a great reaction to have because reaching isn't that big of a... Uh, it doesn't leave that much vulnerability as the defensive actor, whereas like punching, obviously, you, you put your hips into it a lot more. You know, your, your feet are unstable. It's just different. Um, you're, you're a little less yeah, positionally sound. So reaching is great. So he'll he'll do it off his own strikes. But yeah, if you're wrestling with him, he's pretty quick to catch wrists. If he sees you know you're you're on one side with a single leg and you're going to connect with the other hand, he'll he'll grab the connecting hand. Uh, he'll he'll drag that down to make sure you can't connect it to the other leg. He'll usually wizard on on most things because people uh, don't often get solid entries on him, so they're not getting deep on doubles. So even if they shoot a double from fairly far out and they get some sort of contact, he's hipping into it and wizarding off. So you're 
eventually on a single, a little bit like Aldo, honestly. Uh, so he'll be, you know, Wizard on the single, fighting the wrist. Uh, he'll switch to a cross face. He can turn a limp leg out, kick out. That's a really important skill to have as an MMA fighter. you got to be able to limp leg because otherwise you're, you're extending the exchange. You have to break out of that. Best way to break out of a single is a limp leg, um, which is great off a, a Wizard in post. So he posts as well. Uh, Benson Henderson fight. You really saw some impressive uh, single leg defense there. Um, yeah, even when he turns to kick out, he turns back in really quickly because sometimes your kick out leaves you a little out of position. Sometimes you're facing the wrong way and you have to turn back around. But, you know, super athletic, nimble, getting right back into position and you know being ready to catch underhooks or what have you. So when he's when his mind is set on wrestling, he's fantastic. He can be really really good. I mean, one of the best wrestlers in MMA, I would say, like, top 20. If I had to make a top 20 list, I think he'd be on it for sure. Uh, because he doesn't wrestle offensively very much, and his defense isn't, like, blow you out of the water spectacular, I wouldn't put him top 10, probably. Uh, but if he started to incorporate his own offense a little more, I, I'd consider bumping him up. He's really great. Uh, so I really enjoyed writing that article. But yeah, the single leg defense is huge. Um, some of the things that can... Oh, yeah, also against the cage. This is what's going to matter against Usman. Uh, it's same thing, really. I mean, he's great at digging underhooks and getting to the wrist, and underhook and wrist is a great spot to turn someone from because they can't really post or, you know, stop the momentum on the side that you have the wrist. And the underhook's good for, you know, generating that motion in the first place. So that's a really good place to escape cage positions from, which is a huge factor against Usman, who puts everyone on the cage and keeps them there for the most part. Uh, but generally... In extended exchanges, he can sometimes get impatient and get himself into trouble. Like his his reactions, his instincts are great, but then sometimes they'll be too good. <laughs> he has like too good of a position. He's like, oh man, I gotta take this, and he'll start punching or he'll try to choke Damian Maya. <laughs> he'll make some errors tactically. Like the best thing for him is always gonna be to separate and get back to striking because that's where he has the best chance to win. Uh, it's not very often that he fights someone that's a you know better striker than him and, and a worse grappler than him. Uh, Wonder Boy fight was like the only time that ever happened and he did not <laughs> approach that as someone that was interested in grappling. So Masvidal is an interesting case like that. And another error I would say, or, or you know, a hole in his defensive wrestling game is he's pretty reactive with it. Uh, I talked about the hand fighting. That's about the only proactive thing he does as, as you know, the defensive actor. Hand fighting in general is a really great thing to do if you're not trying to get shot on, not trying to get surprised, because uh, most ranges become safe for you to you know throw offense off of, and you can go right back to your control positions after you strike, in and out of the clinch, uh, which is something he does really well. It's something uh, Peter Jan does really well, which I'm looking forward to seeing. Uh, there's a lot of guys who are figuring that one out uh, as an important skill to have. Max Holloway is a really good hand fighter. Uh, Volkanovski is a really good hand fighter. Uh, so a lot of great defensive artists and offensive artists do those types of things. But outside of that, he's basically just saying, okay, I'm going to do that. And otherwise, I'm just doing my normal striking game. And when wrestling happens, I will be ready for it. But he's not doing much to uh, discourage wrestling outside of the hand fight. He's not throwing a lot of linear kicks, which is one of the best weapons, I would say, to discourage level changing. Uh, he could body strike more. He does all of those things. He does it more than most MMA fighters, but it's not part of his, like, volume process these are just things he does in in sequences so when those things are happening they are beneficial because it builds in the mechanics of like underhooking and like matching their levels and other important defensive actions but overall i wouldn't say he's like 
planning on making you not wrestle. He'll still, like, you know, bound forward on strikes and leave his hips exposed sometimes. So, yeah, he's there. He's there to be shot on sometimes. And uh, in the Maya fight especially, he got a little more flat-footed as the fight went on, a little more static in his stance, and that made his, uh, his leg a little more available as a target for singles. And uh, I guess now I'll transition to talking about Usman. That's a good spot to do it because Usman is really good at, at picking up a snatch single from relatively uh, long range just because of the length of his arms and the strides he can take. And plus he comes in behind his jab anyway, so he can pretty much just you know be level-changing behind the jab and jab into range and go to the body jab again and actually just snatch single in the leg. So uh, Or off the right hand, he's, he's good at both. But he's really good at, you know, Snatching up that leg and just driving to the cage and not even worrying about finishing an open space, just make it a cage transition. Um, so even if you're not that close to the cage, he'll get you there. And overall, I think that's the kind of stuff that's going to matter because I don't see Masvidal being easy to pressure and like just struck back to the cage, but I do see him as welcoming of the pocket. And I think that'll give Usman opportunities to get into wrestling situations. I have no doubt that Masvidal will do well in a lot of them. I think it's a losing battle. I think it's a losing battle to continue to wrestle with him. Uh, he's not going to get tired, probably. We haven't seen him get tired yet. <laughs> he's got a ridiculous gas tank. And Masvidal has great cardio, too, but it's a little different. He gets a little sloppier. It wears him down a little bit more, where Usman can basically keep doing the same things. Uh, he doesn't need as much speed behind his his actions. It's not as dynamic as, as his athleticism. It's more consistent. Um so I think it'll benefit him to have a longer fight where they're having a lot of these wrestling and clinching exchanges. Um, yeah, I expect Masvidal to beat him up off a lot of these attempts because sometimes he can kind of cheat it and be lunging and reaching a bit. Uh, I think his chin is solid. I don't think he'll get hurt like automatically from doing that. I think Masvidal will have to capitalize on a few key moments. I think it's going to be a close fight probably. I'm, I'm thinking decision for Usman. Uh Another thing is that, you know, with Masvidal being good at creating space and, you know, underhooking and grabbing the wrist and turning off the cage, uh, Usman's pretty acutely aware of how to deal with people who are very good with a little bit of space on the cage. And he'll just, uh, he'll basically ride parallel. He'll flatten his hips against you and try to get like a shallow, you know, underhooks on, on the hips and just press his hips in and like create short little breaks and get right back to it and give you so little space. And he's just suffocating. Uh, he did that to Rafael Dos Anjos, who is a little bit smaller than, than Masvidal, but not that much smaller. And I think uh, despite RDA's like breakdowns in some performances where he looks kind of, you know, flimsy, <laughs> he doesn't look very strong sometimes after a fight goes on. But in the first round or like first couple rounds or when he has gas, he always looks pretty physical. RDA does. Um despite what your memory might be telling you from a couple moments where he was, you know, looked helpless. I think that has more to do with him gassing. Um, but yeah, Usman is crazy strong, and he did not have any trouble controlling RDA, and he definitely suffocated him in those first couple rounds before he opened up a little bit more. So I think Usman's probably going to try to slow the fight down if he's, you know, following a, a nice, safe game plan. I don't really know what he's going to come out and do, especially now he's been working with Whitman. And his striking is improving so much. Uh, I, I assume we haven't seen it improve so much, but it definitely got better from you know, his title run to the, the Covington fight. I wouldn't say he's an elite striker in the sport quite yet, but he's definitely effective and he's definitely you know, confident, I would say. He's doing a, a decent amount of advanced things, especially the body hitting. Uh, and I mean, he just, he, there's look, it looks like there's a lot of weight behind his strikes, which 
just adds to the uh the room the breathing room he has to be technically you know proficient he can he can cheat things sometimes he can be a little a little sloppy and still get away with stuff so i'm super interested in that fight i think that's going to be like the wrestling matchup of the night i swear to god if there's another like quick ending and we don't get to actually see these things play out and be so mad i would much rather it happen and i'd be totally wrong the way it goes down than for there to be not any wrestling at all i mean that's so frustrating it's happened to me a good number of times now at least twice with uh Usman and Covington, and also with uh, Askren and uh, Masvidal. So, two two parties who have been involved in disappointing non-wrestling performances before, but uh, I think maybe this matchup is close enough that things things will happen um, in, in clinching and grappling exchanges. So, I'm really looking forward to that. I can't wait. And, yeah, now I am going to transition into listener questions but i just want to drop a little nugget first you know that it doesn't really influence my uh <laughs> my opinion on on the masvidal fight but he has been working with bo nickel uh who is going to start his own att gym in state college uh if you don't know bo nickel is a three-time ncaa champion for penn state uh u23 world champion in freestyle he'd be like a really tough guy in batir Sakulov and uh shabazi gavgar gazgar I don't know how to say it. Uh, really good Iranian uh, at U23 Worlds, and uh, he, he's a top 20-ish guy at 92 kilograms. He also Jaden Cox in the wrestle loss last year uh, for the for the world team spot, and he was like super well known for Penn State in college. He was like a pinning machine and a great scrambler and great upper body, really great all around wrestler, big guy, athletic, you, know, you name it. He's expressed interest in doing MMA, but yeah, he signed with uh, Malki Kawa, and I, th- I believe that's, you know, Masvidal's manager's brother, so there's a connection there. And yeah, I think he went down to Florida to help him train for this fight. Anthony Kasser, another Penn State national champion, was there. And yeah, I think they've been working with Masvidal, and Nickel actually came to Abu Dhabi with Masvidal. He's, I saw him in the embedded videos, so that that just means that he's taking his wrestling training very seriously. But like I said, I don't think Masvidal's wrestling had that many holes. Uh, I think it was mostly his thought process and like the way he approaches the fight overall and the decisions he makes are more the issue than any wrestling mechanics. Uh, getting the feel for a big wrestler and you know being on your toes and being sharp is going to be great, but like I said, I don't think that's the, the thing that needed the most improvement. And how much can you really improve in a relatively short period of time? We don't really know how long they've had together. So, yeah, uh, listener questions time. Hope you enjoyed that little breakdown first. Okay, so if it's your first time listening, uh, you know through Patreon we accept requests for uh, for ten dollars for podcast topics, and we spend time on those. You know we'll do- dedicate large segments of episodes to them. Uh, for these you know free questions, if you will, from Twitter, I do them rapid fire. I do very little preparation for them. I just try to go off the cuff. I, you know I've seen the questions before, so I thought about them, but. I didn't really do prep for many of them. Uh, there's one I did do prep for. It's the first one I'll answer, and uh, then from then on it'll just be off the hip, off the uh, yeah, off the hip. So, hope you enjoy my my rapid fire listener questions. The first one I'm going to answer is from Stephen Ray, which is uh, it's funny. He's I think he's Scottish, and he's you know Stevie Ray, which is you know the UFC fighter. So they're the same person, clearly. But no, I think he's in the in the journalism space, and he does some writing, and uh, he's 
seems to be a fan of the fight site, so I appreciate that. And he, he replies to stuff, and he seems to have some good opinions, so I respect you. I respect you, Stephen Ray. And he asked me three questions, and I'm only going to answer one of them because it was too many questions to get in a short period of time. And these are free questions, so I don't feel guilty about it at all. The reason I chose to do a little prep for this one is because last week I talked about Team Quest and kind of broke down what their wrestling credentials mean. Uh, that's funny, it's kind of what uh, Mike Riordan used to do for Bloody Elbow. He did the fact grinders and explained the credentials of fighters. That's essentially what I did uh, in short audio form. But I forgot about Dan Henderson. <laughs> I, I talked about Randy Couture, Matt Lindland, and Chael Sonnen. Uh, so please listen to that if, you want, if you're interested in that topic. And I forgot Dan Henderson for some reason. So here I am talking about Dan Henderson's credentials. Uh, Henderson is from California, which I would say is a top three wrestling state in terms of high school competition. Uh, it's a big state. There's lots of people. It's a one-class tournament, meaning everyone goes to the same state tournament. Pennsylvania, which I would say is the number one school, has two. Uh, New Jersey has one. Uh, Ohio has two or three. Um, for, for reference, but not many one-class state tournaments out there. So if you're a California state champ or state placer, you're one of the best kids in the country for sure. It's just a high-level state overall. Uh, but yeah, in high school, he placed twice at the state tournament. He was a finalist uh, his junior year, and he took fifth his senior year. So a little, maybe a little underachieving there, but he was solid. And it was probably a tough bracket, I have to imagine, because his senior year, he was the junior national champion in freestyle and Greco. Uh, junior Nationals are Fargo these days. I don't know if it was a different tournament or if it was like a FILA World Team Trials or anything like that, but, you know, National Champion Greco and Freestyle in high school. So probably one of the top recruits in the country. He deferred uh, his college decision either for a year or two years. Uh, he took... He, he was in college for two seasons. He didn't really take to college wrestling. I don't know the full story there. Uh, I think, you know, considering his international styles credentials, maybe he was interested in just going straight through and wrestling for an art, uh, a wrestling club and just, you know, doing Greco, doing freestyle. But he ended up going to college. Uh, he went to Cal State Fullerton, Fullerton first, and then he transferred to Arizona State. And uh, he was an NCAA qualifier, but he didn't really do anything in folk style. I don't think it was ever really his thing. I think he was always a Greco guy. Good upper body. In college he was a three-time university national champion in greco uh, i talked about university nationals last week with uh the other greco men from team quest it's it's a decent tournament it's not any it's not as big of a deal as it sounds uh, for being a national tournament you don't really get the uh, the top guys in the country there that often uh but yeah, he was a three-time national champion at the senior level for greco uh, which i assume you could say is because he uh, yeah, made several world teams, so you have to be the national champion to make a world team. Uh, he also made two Olympic teams, 92 and 96. Uh, he didn't place at the Olympics, and he didn't place at Worlds, uh, but he was the rep uh, twice for Worlds and twice for the Olympics, so I would say that's four national championships. Wikipedia, you're wrong. Uh, and he also took bronze at Pan Ams, which isn't really a big deal. And uh, gold at 2,000 Pan Ams. Now, the distinction is his 1995 Pan Ams, where he took bronze, was the Pan Am Games, which only happens four years. And the gold medal in 2000 is the Pan Am Championships, which is every year. And people who are not college All-Americans, who are maybe not so good at their style compared to the rest of the world, 
often win the Pan Am Championship. So it's not that prestigious as it sounds. It's not like Jiu-Jitsu where it's a big tournament. Uh, but yeah, the games are a little more prestigious. There's a little more uh, seriousness with the entries. Uh, but yeah, after the 96 Olympics, he made one world team. And then he tried to qualify for the 2000 Olympics. And he did not make it, obviously. But you have to consider this. It's 2000, he's still wrestling, and he won a Pan Am Championship. In 2000, he had 10 fights. He was 9-1. and one. <laughs> He was already an MMA fighter at that point. It's the same as Lindland, really, except more extreme. Uh, and then in 2001, he made the finals of the world team trial. So he almost made the world team in 2001 when he was 12-1. and one, And he lost to Matt Lindland, which is kind of, kind of funny, his teammate. Uh, so this is like, you have to consider that Team Quest was, you know, three or four of the top Greco-Roman wrestlers in the country, like actively competing, but also taking, you know, dozens of MMA fights between them at the same time. Uh, it's pretty unreal, actually, that they were doing that. I, I can see why there's such intrigue around them, uh, why there's such a legendary gym. It, it's pretty insane. I mean, he was almost the guy going to world championships for Greco uh, while he was beating, like, uh, Big Nog. He was beating Antonio Noguera, uh, Carlos Newton, Henzo Gracie, who he knocked out. He was 12-1, and one, so that's that's pretty ridiculous. So I'm glad I, I got to Dan Henderson. I felt bad for skipping that one the first time. So thank you, Stephen, for that. I end up repeating myself a lot with these podcasts. People ask pretty similar questions, but I'm going to keep answering a lot of those same questions because there's things I really want to hammer home, and I'll try to pick up new, new details and new comments to have about them as I go. Uh, but yeah, you will see me answering similar questions <laughs> a lot of the time, but there's some things I'm passionate about that I want to share. So one of those is from Dr. Dingus, who's uh, at is actual Dingus, and we just call him Dingus, and he's a great guy, and he's a Discord patron, and we love him, and he's very funny, as you can tell by his handle. But he asks, uh, what would you like to see as the next major development in the wrestling metagame in MMA? And I, I've answered this, like what's most underutilized about wrestling in MMA and, and other forms of that question. Uh, the answer is upper body, base takedowns and that doesn't just mean throws it also means trips <laughs> but like shrugs you know duck unders you know, things things that occur above the waist pretty much uh for most of the motion and i actually have an example this time of someone who's been doing well I, i've talked about hector lombard and john jones before but i got another one and i think i'll end up writing about him soon uh but i was watching some combat sambo yeah, it was, it was cool. I was watching the 2017 World Championships, and I watched some of the 2019 World Championships, just the finals, and some highlights just to see what, what what they're up to, how good are these guys. It's all over the board, man. Some of them are, are really good uh, overall, and some of them are like active MMA fighters, like Vadim Nemkov won uh, both those tournaments, you know, 2017 and 2019. Uh, but some other guys are like less good MMA fighters, and some of them aren't MMA fighters at all. So it's pretty interesting, the mix, and some people approach it a lot more like judo, some people are really embracing the combat aspect of it, some people look more like gi jiu-jitsu, uh, so I, I really enjoyed the uh, the clashing of, of styles with a jacket combat sport uh, that allowed striking, so that was, that was fun. Uh, so I recommend it, and one of the guys I really enjoyed was Rustam Taldiev, I think he is a you know, 125-pounder, one. 15 pounder maybe in uh in combat sambo but yeah he, he fights at flyweight he does some cool stuff first of all in combat sambo he does a lot of guard play 
which is fun with the jacket. Honestly, you have a lot of grips you can work with, and uh, he pulls guard a lot and transitions right from throws into you know entanglements and falls off for arm bars and all sorts of cool stuff. So I really enjoy watching him, and that's dangerous because in Sambo they do have pins. Like it's judo where if you're pinned for thirty seconds, it's either a win or twenty seconds. It's points. Uh, it was in Russian, so I wasn't totally sure of the scoring system. But I watched uh, one of his MMA fights, a fight he lost, in fact. And he was doing the cool stuff, like getting his hips real close, uh, getting, you know, shallow underhooks uh, and overhooks, and just making sure he was tied up tight on the arms, getting his hips real close, making space to throw knees, and then altering, waiting for their stance to alter based on those those clinch tactics, and hitting really nice uh, outside tripping techniques. He did Osotogari, uh, which is like an outside step uh, reap. He also did uh, what I might call a Polish throw, where you step around with an overhook and kind of back arch your way into the finish. So he's really nice off an overhook, really nice off of uh, collar ties. But he was kneeing his way into those setups and like stepping his way over into mount or like falling straight off the back into an arm bar, like really smooth transitions. Uh, he also hit a flying triangle in the next round. But yeah, I think people who, who are clinch artists overall is probably going to be the next development. That's something Ryan Wagner has picked up on if you notice a theme with the people he likes uh it's they're all really good in the clinch i showed him some Tadiev. he's like yeah but he's not actually good at mma I'm like that's true but he does a lot of cool stuff the reason he's not good at mma is because his striking isn't that good and also uh his decision making just isn't conducive to winning mma fights he you know pulls guard which is not often a good idea so that's that's my answer the next question is from the real Shamil, at Shamil the Real, another Discord patron, another great guy, whose real name I know, but I won't reveal it. It's my courtesy to you. Um, he asks, any use for cradles in MMA besides a purely control position or to stop scrambles? My answer was basically going to be to stop scrambles <laughs> is a good way to do it. Uh, for those unfamiliar, uh, a cradle is basically any underhook on the leg, uh, grip behind the head, lock your hands. That's a cradle. And they can come from, you know, head outside, um, you know, near side, you know, top side, leg cradles. There's a lot of different variations. Uh, it's it's good to transition off into, like, guillotines because you have a grip on the head or some sort of leg lock because you have them in place there. Uh, it's useful for guard passing because you can, you know, get a, a far side cradle and then step over and maybe mount, maybe take their back, maybe half guard. That's nice, uh, but basically that all stems from a stopping a scramble situation. I wouldn't attempt to cradle someone from an already like solid positional, positionally sound uh, spot, like a, like side control or, or something like that. I, I wouldn't like transition into a cradle if I didn't need to stop anything from happening. But if we're scrambling and I hit a cradle, yeah, I can use it for a lot of stuff. But I don't think it's going to be like a, a home base because... You'd be surprised how hard it is to hold onto a cradle sometimes when someone's uh, moving and they're strong and maybe stronger than you, or if they're really lanky. It's tough too. But good question. Next question is from Dara Nugent, who is one of my very best friends on Twitter.com and hopefully in real life also. He asked me, who is the handsomest wrestler in MMA? Additionally, is there a correlation between being a cutie and being able to defend, unable to defend takedowns like Dustin Poirier? Um, the handsomest wrestler in MMA is probably Zach Mikowski. 
right now. He's from Pennsylvania, which is one of the most attractive things you can you can do for me. Uh, and also, he hits big lifts on his single legs and uh, is a, a smart guy who thinks about fights analytically. So all of that's very attractive. And plus, he's, he's a cutie pie. Otherwise, he's not going to like that I said that, but he'll never hear it. So it's fine. Uh, and the correlation between being a cutie and being able to undefend unable to defend takedowns if I had to make up a theory to support that it's not true but if I wanted it to be true I might say that people who are pretty are more concerned about like getting their hair messed up or getting their face messed up or you know getting getting gritty you know what I mean which isn't true about Dustin Poirier at all but let's say it is true because he has nice hair (laughs) Then I would say maybe like wrestling with your face is is not as good of an idea for them. Like actually level changing with someone and blocking with your head, or you know like fighting through a cross face or I don't know things of that nature. Uh, I, I think it has to do with people who are cutie pies are just offensively minded and they they want to hurt people because they're cool like that, uh, and they prioritize offense and counters to actual you know actual defense. So that would be my, my reasoning to support that, even though it's definitely not true. But thank you, Dora. I love you. This is from the guy Dan Albert, who is also very smart and a very good friend. And sometimes he asks me very complicated questions with a lot of different points to them. He gets very specific because he wants to know a very specific thing. He'll write me like a, a short novel about his question. But even then, like, the question isn't actually that difficult. He just re- wants to be careful explaining it, which I appreciate. He took some measures to not make it complicated in this situation. I think he actually ended up making it a bigger question by making it shorter. <laughs> but I, f- I forgive him. But he asks, in what situations are underhooks preferable to overhooks? And what about overhooks to underhooks? So it seems simple. But that's actually a gigantic question because <laughs> there are so many different situations to, that I could think of. Um, but I will just name a couple reasons why you might do each um, in MMA. How about that? In MMA, because that'll make it a little bit easier, I think. Uh, if we're standing and we clinch up and I want to move you, if I want you to go left or backward or to the right or forward, any of those things, I think an underhook is preferable. Even just one side. Um, punching straight through on an underhook, like literally feeling like you're making a fist and punching your arm across their back when you're having an underhook, uh, you know, plus body pressure and, and, you know, moving forward with your feet. That'll usually get them to go straight backward. Uh, if you want them to go to your left, for example, you have a right side underhook, flaring out your elbow and kind of working them over, like angling, opening the window, some people say. Uh, that'll that'll turn their body to the left, which is also how you set up an underhook throw by. Uh, or if you do a little bit of both, it'll really throw them by. Uh, I could pull the underhook to get them to go one way. Uh, there's a lot of stuff I could do. Uh, an underhook, I mean an overhook, I think is usually to straighten somebody up to do less offensive wrestling, to stop movement uh, generally, I would say. I mean, you can manipulate people from uh, overhooks, especially if you have double overhooks or a wizard. I think a wizard is a little easier to manipulate. It's more angled and you can uh, really get your hips into it and, you know, grab your shin, go shin wizard, do, do a little more there. Uh, but some situations might be someone shot a takedown against the cage and you couldn't 
dig the underhook to prevent that motion, but you can take them off your legs by overhooking and pulling up on the overhook to get them tall. If you clamp on that, they can't lower, they can't level change without you coming with them because you have their arms trapped. An underhook, uh, usually someone can slide out of that if they want to just, you know, back off entirely. Uh, wizard, it's not so easy to do that with, or an overhook, it's not so easy to do that with. Conversely, if you're the offensive person and you have an underhook, that's an easy thing to slide down off of into a leg attack from. With, whereas with an overhook, you sometimes they are underhooking and you're overhooking and you can't just go you know, beneath their underhook. You'll get stuck there. Um, those are some really basic ideas, and I probably messed that up big time. But there you go, Dan. This question is from Matt Joya, who is also staff. And he's a really smart guy, and he's a, a grappler, and he loves boxing. And he's from New York, which I think is a positive quality. I, I've been liking the people I'm meeting from New York, so that's probably a good thing. And Matt asks, what traits and techniques make a successful counter-wrestler in MMA and grappling compared to a successful anti-wrestler? So the distinction between an anti-wrestler and a counter-wrestler. I like this one. Uh, a counter-wrestler is somebody who looks to take advantage of the wrestling of their opponent. Tony Ferguson is a counter wrestler. Tony Ferguson will Imanari roll or like rolling Omoplata you or, you know, pull a Dars or get a guillotine or, you know, otherwise scramble offensively from your wrestling. Um, Luke Rockhold gonna, you know, scramble through and hit an inverted triangle on you. <laughs> uh, th things like that. Um, people who look to punish your attempts and turn it into their offense. An anti-wrestler is somebody who wants to shut down wrestling altogether. They don't want it to happen. Uh, a good anti-wrestler would be like Eddie Alvarez, I would say. <clears throat> a lot of it's because of you know his wide stance and that he jabs well and that he angles off his own attacks and that he attacks the body and he kicks the legs. Um, those are all good reasons. It's funny, uh, my, my boy, the Karth, he's not on Twitter anymore because he got banned for telling racists what was up, but... Uh, he, he's pointed out a couple of times that Charles Oliveira does a lot of anti-wrestler things, which is funny because he should be a counter-wrestler, <laughs> but he does a lot of uh, kneeing up the middle and he does a lot of linear kicking, things that would inter intercept a level change or a penetration step. Um, a lot of intercepting strikes, elbowing off uh, you know, close range, uh, a lot of uh, threats, a lot of threats. Um, those, are, those are the basic concepts. Jose Aldo is a great anti-wrestler. Uh, he jabs. He can, you know, pivot out out of out of the pocket and you know change directions on you. He can get off his back off the cage really easily. Um, the jab is really good for stopping people from closing that range just by walking into you, which is pretty important. Uh, he's another one that likes knees up the middle. But people that use those sorts of tools um, are good anti wrestlers, and you know people with good footwork generally who can just avoid getting into certain situations that people like. Um, Comma worthy, basically, in the third round against Bob Ross, violent Bob Ross. He sold out on anti-wrestling. He said, I'm just going to plant myself here and just try to hit you whenever you are in my range, and I will not let you manipulate my positioning in the cage uh, so you can't get me against the cage, and I have to sprawl in the center. Um, and that that was basically an anti-wrestling strategy. Counter-wrestling, you just need effective weapons that would work off of wrestling situations. <laughs> I mean, there's so many options there. Um, but yeah, Luke Rockhold, Tony Ferguson, those are good guys to look at. Joachim Hansen, um, 
Yeah, that's a good question, Matt. I like that. This one is from Smash Jitsu only, who we call Smash, and he's a little English lad, and he reads Roll Doll, which is what I expect every English lad to do. Uh, but yeah, he's a good guy. He's very funny. He asks, is wall walking a dying art with developments in the meta like tying a leg and the Dagestani handcuff, making the cage a tool for control instead of a tool to get up? Uh, first of all, just, I got a bone to pick with Dagestani handcuff. People have attributed this technique to, to Dagestan and to Abdulmanab and to Khabib. And, like, yeah, they do it and they made it more popular. But, I mean, people have been doing that forever in wrestling and MMA. Basically, I've seen a couple different positions referred to as Dagestani handcuffs. Mostly they mean uh, you're, in, you're in some sort of turtle position. You have cross-wrist control. Like, let's say I'm on your left and my right hip is, is connected to your hip. Uh, and have like some sort of hook across your back with one arm and I'm controlling wrists on the left side I'll, I might control that wrist with cross wrist pull it across reach across their back and then pull that arm across their body Then I have the arm trapped underneath them and you can just you know tee off relentlessly. That's one option uh, you could also Do the same thing across their back and not under their belly that would also work uh, you could have them on their back and create space under their back and pull that arm across and, and control across sides as well. Um, those are all really similar conceptual positions. Um, but yeah, it's been done a lot <laughs> for a long time, but they made it popular for sure. Uh, yeah, tying the legs, sitting on the legs, like the leg mount. Those are all tactics to control against the cage. And generally, tactics to control against the cage are going to make it harder to wall walk and use the cage to get up. Um, this could be make it a dying art for people whose sole idea of anti-wrestling is to scoop back to the cage and hope they can get up from there um, if you can't really deal with wrestling otherwise but i don't think it makes it a dying art just in generally because you just you're going to encounter people who are good at these things and it's going to be less of an available option not everyone can do it um and not everyone is just going to fall victim to it automatically if someone tries i mean Think about the steps involved to get to that position. You have to give up risk control. I mean, people who fight risks, who you know, don't just sit there and turtle and can you know get, get back to their base uh, and get their back against the cage. That's pretty helpful. Uh, people who hit switches and turn in before they're controlled, uh, that, that could be helpful. Although I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the switch as a tactic, but some people have been using it all right in, in MMA off those kinds of situations from turtle uh, or referee's position, you might call it. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a dying art. I just think some people who are getting countered this way need to start learning the defenses. I mean, you look at Dustin Poirier, he wasn't even fighting wrists. He, like, thought about peeling hands sometimes, but he didn't really try to apply a lot of basic wrestling defense. Um, so, yeah, there, there's more that goes into it than you'd think. Uh, there's a lot of things people could still be doing to wall walk while having these tactics, you know, attempted on them. That is a good question. Thank you. Thank you for that one, Smash. And the next one is from Keith Galvin, who is very Irish and strong and just a legend, legend of this world. And uh, yeah, I, I like him very much. I hope he listens to this. Keith asks, Jared Rochalt, question mark. And the context for this is that I was asking what I should write about this week, and it, it, it ended up not being Jared Rochalt, but he... he insisted that I write about Jared Rochalt and then I made this tweet and he asked me to, to talk about Jared Rochalt. So I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it for you, Keith. I don't even know if you if you really want it, but I'm gonna do it anyway. 
Uh, Jerry Rochelle is from Idaho, and then he moved to Oklahoma. I'm reading his Wikipedia page, but I'm going to contextualize things for you, so it's more helpful than you just reading it. It's work, I promise. Uh, Oklahoma is a power 15 wrestling state, I might say. Uh, for context, there's a uh, an all-star dual meet at the end of every year. Usually, it's, it's, it's dead now, uh, as of like a year ago, but it was called the Dapper Dan, and it was always Team Pennsylvania versus Team USA, um, and it's, it's close. Like, that's how good Pennsylvania is, and it's only seniors. So it's seniors from Pennsylvania, seniors around the country uh, in high school, and it's, a, it's one of the best high school events of the year every year. They always do, like, a preliminary dual meet. It's Team Whippeal, W-P-I-A-L, and that's, like, the Pittsburgh region of Pennsylvania. It's Western PA. Uh, that's what the WP is for. And uh, they always do Whippeal versus some other state, like another state that has a strong claim. Like, Illinois comes sometimes, and, and one time it was Oklahoma. And Oklahoma beat Team Whippeal. So they're pretty good. Uh, most of the state champs in, in Pennsylvania come from the Whippeal. It's the strongest region in the state. Uh, a lot of NCAA champions and All-Americans come from the Whippeal. Uh, so for Oklahoma to be better than them, that the kind of makes them a power state, in my opinion. And they're not consistently better than them, but they did beat them in the dual meet. And that matters. So Oklahoma's pretty good. Uh, but yeah, he was a four-time state champion in Oklahoma. So he was, he was pretty prodigious, I would say. Uh, Two-time national runner-up. There's no context for that if it's Fargo or, or what it is, but I assume he was pretty good there. Uh, went to Oklahoma State. Uh, his brother, Jake Rochelt, who fought in the UFC as well, was a three-time NCAA champion. And uh, Rochelt was a three-time All-American at heavyweight, uh, and he had over 120 career wins, which is a big deal. And he is actually the the winningest heavyweight in the history of Oakie State, which is a, a storied program, like one of the oldest and most successful programs in NCAA history. Um, fifth overall in terms of wins for Okie State history. So he wrestled a lot, and he rarely lost, and he was very good. And I think his highest finish at NCAAs was second in his senior year. So he was very good. And he was considered athletic as a wrestler, and I think that's kind of dwindled. And he probably never really had figured out how to apply his athletic type to, to MMA very well. Even though he, you know, he had a solid career. He's 20 and 8. That's not bad, but, you know. He's had some performances that make him a joke to some people, which is why I assume you asked, but yeah, there you go, Keith. <laughs> All right, three more, three more questions. This one is from Octavius Rex, whose handle is Crunch the Human, which is, I think, interesting. Is it like that you're a human whose name is Crunch and you're, oh, I'm Crunch the Human, or is it like a command, Crunch the Human, makes you think. Okay, Octavius asks, can you talk about how stance affects shot availability in MMA? And he explains a little bit more, but it's basically my answer. So I'll just not say that part. But yeah, I talked about this in a previous podcast, but it's another one I want to answer again, just because it's fun to think about. But basically from open stance, you know, my lead leg is touching your lead leg. Our bodies are both facing the same direction. Uh, like our stomachs are both, our chests are both facing the same way. That's open stance, uh, you know, Outside single, outside step singles are basically the most available thing. A sweep single, you know, a lot of different snatch single, a lot of different options there. Uh, not really so much the double leg because their stance is bladed and you can't get to both sides of the hips very easily. Uh, yeah, I, I would say singles are super available from there. And then also if you're uh, if you're tying up with them in their open stance, trips that that go 
to your right, for example, for both, if I'm staying with my right leg forward and you're staying with your right leg forward. Anything going to the right would be good because you're vulnerable in that direction when you're that bladed. So that's one, one option. And then closed stance, uh, you know, we're standing opposite stances and our lead legs are crossed. <clears throat> that's one way to ex explain that. Uh, double legs become available because you can actually get that angle on their hip and hit your, uh, turn the corner and start to get towards their back so you can get that finish. Um, also high crotches because you can go, you know, cross into the, uh, into the leg. So that's basically the, the breakdown of which shots are there at, at which times for me. Uh, knee taps, I would say you could probably hit from both sides, depending on how you're approaching it. Thank you. That was a really good question. This one is from Notar Neuron, which is like Motor Neuron. And I butchered this last week and I didn't remember who it was. But now I know who it is, but I'm not going to reveal who it is. But I know you and you're a good guy. So I'm going to talk about it. Uh, Notar Muron asks, what main factors differentiate successful submission counters to wrestling, Sakuraba, Oliveira, to unsuccessful ones, Rose, Dustin, beyond just proficiency at the submission? Well, I would say technical, like mechanical proficiency at doing the submissions is important, but beyond that, I would say just positional comfortability <laughs> would be pretty important. That's what I, the main difference I see there is like, yeah, they're good at these submissions, for Sakuraba, Kimura from bottom or, you know, from your rear standing control. But it's not like they just have that move and that's it. Like, ah, it's my counter and I'm going to Kimura you. Um, they, you know, they threaten the position, but they can also, you know, flow through it and use it to manipulate and threaten and transition to other positions. Whereas, you know, Dustin, for example, he's hitting this guillotine on Khabib and it's a good guillotine. And he's, he's creating motion off of it and he had a chance to escape. And then he just committed to the guillotine. And I'm like, you are not a master of this tool if you're not using it the best way possible. Uh, Rose, as well, was kind of just holding with that the Kimura from the back position. Uh, it was also, you know, Kimura from the double leg. And I, I believe that's how Rose, uh, Andrade transitioned to the, the rear standing a few times. I might have made that up. I haven't rewatched that fight in a while. But a difference might be uh, RDA versus Kevin Lee, where... Uh, RDA is countering the doubles against the cage with the Kimura grip, but he's also ripping that grip and trying to separate the arms, whereas I think Rose looked like she was just holding. So I think intent and, like, why are you using this and how comfortable are you in this position generally? Are you just, like, trying to bail yourself out here? That Those are probably the, the main factors. There might be more to that, but for a quick answer, that's my answer. Okay, last one. My mouth, as always, is, is very dry. I drink a lot of water, guys, I swear. Um... Okay, Juice to the Gills, who's become one of my favorite question askers, and I, I really just enjoy saying his name as well. Juice to the Gills says, Can we get a breakdown of your personal wrestling and MMA game and the differences between the two? What works in one, not the other, etc. Interested to learn more about my favorite analysts. I, I mean, yeah, I definitely include this one because I get to talk about myself and I get to, you know, read someone sucking up to me, which is always really fun. But I don't know. My personal game, I feel weird talking about it just because I haven't been successful at any sort of competitive level with my with my game. Uh, so I, I feel weird, like an imposter, like a fraud saying, oh, I'm good at these things. Because I'm not really good at anything if I haven't done it to anyone good, you know? But I mean, there are certain things that I've done to people that I consider, you know, competent at certain things. And uh, I know what, what to hang my hat on and whatnot too, so I'll talk about it anyway. I mean, I've been training a long time, so I have a lot of experience like with what works more consistently. Uh, I'll start with wrestling. Uh, wrestling, I was a terrible wrestler when I was actually in competition. 
the one year I was in JV, so nothing worked then. <laughs> I didn't have a game at all then. I was really bad. Uh, but now that you know, years have been removed, I've kind of taught myself a lot more and, and figured some stuff out. My game is basically just swing singles. <laughs> that, that's the entire thing. I used to try to do a lot of different things. Uh, I have a good inside trip. Like I, I am good mechanically at it. I don't have a lot of setups besides uh, like dragging back from, from over-unders or double-overs. Uh, and then hitting that crow hop. There's a Kendall Cross instructional on YouTube. I do it exactly the way he teaches in that instructional. I think it's really easy. Um, I've hit it before, but not against anyone bigger than me, which is usually who I'm training with. So it's hard to know what's effective if I haven't been able to do it to big people. Uh, something I have been able to do to big people, which I'm really proud of, is my swing single, uh, sweep single, some call it. The Basically, it's just like a pivoting single head and side. And I think I'm mostly successful with it because I'm, I think mechanically I'm decent at it. Uh, my level change isn't as dramatic as, as it could be, um, but like dropping from striking position into it, I think I'm still getting a decent, decent depth on it. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it's relatively fast, and I'm pretty good. Well, <laughs> I'm pretty annoying in like scramble situations. One, just like if we start scrambling, I'm gonna hustle because I have to. That's usually the only times I actually get good positions on people that, that I train with, um, just by caring a lot about getting to the good positions once once things start moving. Um, but yeah, I mean, I used to shoot that and get on the legs and then stay there, stay on my knees, and try to feed my other hand through to collect the far ankle uh, and do it that way, or like go seatbelt to the back or, or something like that. that. That was okay. That was working all right. But I was like, once I was getting to the leg, I'm like, oh, I'm grappling now. But now I, I'm, I have it kind of built into my drilling when I practice it that I'm standing up immediately. I'm standing up immediately with the leg and uh, I either, I, I basically never stand straight up in that position. So like your right arm is around their leg and you got your, your grip locked and you're hip to hip with them. Standing up there kind of puts them in the knee shield and it's like a really easy position to limp leg out of. I don't do that. Uh, I have to change grips when I do it, which makes it you know easier to escape from while I'm doing that. But once I've changed the grips, which I do almost immediately, it's much more solid. So one thing I'll do is stand with it and pass the uh, the ankle into my, my left elbow, so like a cross body. And then you can put pressure on their hip or the, the top of their thigh and uh, basically run the pipe on that to the right. And the other thing I do, which is even riskier, is I'll shoot that single and I'll, as I'm standing under hook on the left side, so I have double underhooks on the leg, pass the right side underhook to the back to seatbelt and finish from there. So I can, I, I can do a little seatbelt lift. I can't do an arch from it, but I can kind of lift them up and bring that leg closer. Uh, but usually I'm just pulling, pulling on the back and trying to kick out that base leg and tripping backward into side control. And that's, that's probably my highest percentage takedown. It's not super high percentage, but I think of the things I do, it's what I'm best at as a wrestler. Uh, my MMA game is not at all connected yet. Uh, I'm because I, I only know how to wrestle righty. <laughs> right now I can double a little bit off my left and I can double uh, from both stances but I can only sweep single well off my right leg and I'm orthodox in MMA so I have to switch stances to hit it uh, so something that I thought about were like shifting into southpaw while I shoot straights or you know just fighting southpaw more and jab hooking and kind of matching that pivoting motion then mixing the pivots into the level change um, 
those are some ideas I had. Also, if someone just comes at me, I can hit a reactive shot pretty decently. Not a not a blast double, but you know, normal knee pound penetration, uh, corner turn type deal. But uh, yeah, otherwise I'm very kicky. <laughs> I throw a lot of lead leg kicks. I throw a lot of low kicks. Uh, I try to jab a lot. I try to jab the body a lot. Um, I have like weird bad teep mechanics with my lead leg. It, it turns into more of a stabby kick, which I have dropped people with, which is kind of cool that I learned how to do something accidentally. Uh, and Ryan says that's a real kick, so I'm happy with it. That's that's more or less what I do. And then as a grappler, uh, I'm mostly like all front headlock until I can get to side control, even though I'm a bad guard passer. But if I'm there uh, from side control, I like to either try to isolate an arm with my head uh, to go for arm triangles and try to do like cartwheel passes into arm arm triangle positions, or I will take my if I'm in side control on your left on your right side. My left arm is closer to your head. That's that position of side control. Um, I'll try to loop the arm around like a like a topside guillotine position. Use that grip to go into north south. Uh, lock that up decently. Then transition back the same way. Uh, back into side control and, and just follow through that motion, step into mount and get a, a mounted guillotine. And that's like my, my side control north-south mount system. It's not very good, but it's what I do. <laughs> uh, and yeah, otherwise that's kind of it. And my other trick is when people put me in scarfold, I triangle them. That's it. That's basically all that I do. Um, I need to train more. I've been training a long time, but never consistently. So I, I have all like the stupid craft of someone that like rolls and spars a lot but didn't get that much actual instruction so hopefully that amused you i'm sure most of my listeners would, would beat me up because i'm small but you know hopefully i can get good someday I, it's in it's in the cards I, I plan on getting good eventually but it's it's not now <laughs> but thank you for listening uh i can finally end one before an hour mark which is nice and I apologize for my dry mouth and my stupid brain. But yeah, uh, listen again next week. I think we'll probably break down the aftermath of UFC 251. And I'll do that Patreon request for Kyle about Big Nog and Crow Cop. And I will answer more listener questions, maybe, if, if time permits. Probably not, though. <laughs> I'll probably start having guests on again soon-ish, depending on who I can get. Um, but there's there's some other stuff you can look out for. Just stay tuned, and uh, remember we have merch. Uh, the, the link is on Twitter. And uh, Hyperfly, also. You should buy from them. Yeah, that's it for now. All right, peace out, world. <laughs>